the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Freedom with Adam Riojas. His goal is not only to inspire you to receive everything God has for you, but to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. And now, here's your host, Adam Riojas. Woohoo! Welcome to today's show. We have an amazing, powerful show today. Um, of course, we will. Uh, the latter part will be John chapter nine. But this first part of the show, and we're going a little extra long on our interview because this man is is awesome, and his name is Justin Brooks, and he's from the California Innocence Project. So, with that, let's further ado. Let's get going. Justin Brooks, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's so great to see you, my friend. Woohoo! And I just uh, tell us a little bit about about you before we get into this uh, interview. Sure. So I am the founder and director of the California Innocence Project, which is an organization that frees innocent people like you from prison. <laughs> and uh, I started the organization back in 1999. Since then, we've freed 36 innocent men and women from California prisons. Wow. And yeah, and I was inspired to start the project from a, a death penalty case I worked on back in the 90s where my client was factually innocent, this young woman. And it inspired me to start the project and uh, get more innocent people out of prison. That's amazing, Justin. You know, I don't have very many heroes. As a matter of fact, I have no heroes. And when I look at you, you are definitely my hero. You've given me my life back. And, you know, I have two wonderful girls, uh, ages 11 and 9, and I'm married. And, and things are good. And that's because of you. And I would have never thought... We would be here on a radio show talking, but it's such a pleasure and honor to, to be here. So, you know, I've kept up through the years and I've been to some of your birthday parties and we've kept up here and there. And I've spoken at the at the Western School of Law. Um, but he, here's a, an, an interesting question. There's rumors that at one time you were in the top 100 attorneys. Yeah, tell I've me. Been, <laughs> I have been named among the top 100 attorneys in California, which is a real honor since California has more lawyers than anywhere else in the world. <laughs> so to make the top 100, uh, I've made that list a few times. So I'm proud of that. Yes, that's phenomenal. You've also been named California's best. I did win California Lawyer of the Year a couple of times, so. Uh, but you, you're making me blush now, so. <laughs> That's amazing, Justin. I mean, you're the man, without a doubt. Um, there is some rumors, though, that you just don't work here in San Diego, and this is not the only California Innocence Project that uh, that you've started. I know that uh, uh, through when you helped me, the Hawaii Innocence Project was actually started because of that. And I know you're the planter, the founder of that. And of course, somebody else is running it now. But outside of America, where else have you done what you do? Because it's it's worldwide now. 
Yeah. Um, you know, there are innocent people in prison everywhere in the world. There's no such thing as a perfect criminal justice system. Every system makes mistakes. So whereas when I started the California Innocence Project 23 years ago, there were only about five projects in the world. We now have more than 60 projects in the United States. Wow. We have a whole network of projects in Europe, in Asia, um, Australia, New Zealand, and I've personally helped start 32 innocence organizations in Latin America that I, I coordinate out of my office in San Diego. So we have projects all the way from Chile, Buenos Aires, all the way up to the Mexican border. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I can't think of more meaningful work or how to spend my life as a lawyer than, than getting innocent people out of prison. And by setting these projects up, I know that this work will outlive me uh, because I can't do this work forever. And so uh, I've really focused my attention on starting projects as much as working on my own cases and getting people out. That is phenomenal. So I, I remember specifically Chile. And how was there a lot of work involved in that? Because I know they have their own laws and mm-hmm. something had to had be written in order for them to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Every country in the world has its own criminal code and their own procedures and processes. It's very challenging working in Latin America because they've really been under transition of their criminal justice systems over the past 30 years. And I trained actually the first 12 public defenders in Chile after the fall of Pinochet. And so they had a totalitarian regime with death camps and people being executed in the middle of the night. Um, And they then, you know, changed their entire system. And now they have one of the best criminal justice systems in Latin America. My most recent work has been in Mexico. Mexico, for the first time in 400 years, just started having trials. Uh, They actually didn't have trials in Mexico. Everything was done by paper and you couldn't cross-examine police officers because there were no trials. They just took their police reports and said, well, that's the fact. And so everybody was getting convicted in Mexico. And now for about seven years, they've been having trials. And I've been down there training lawyers how to do trials, setting up innocence projects, spending a lot of my time in Mexico. Wow. So did you just say 400 years? There's no trials? Yeah. In, the, in Mexico's 400-year history, they had not had trials as part of their system. And what happened was the police would write a police report. All the paperwork would be submitted to the judge. And pretty much everybody got convicted. And then they just decide the sentence. And with the new Mexican reforms, they've made it so now there's more transparency. There's trials going on. But yeah, that's something not only do most Americans not know that there weren't trials in Mexico. They did a study and most Mexicans didn't know there weren't trials. Wow. Because they watched so much dubbed American television, which showed trials. Makes sense. They thought there were trials going on in Mexico. So I've been doing this work around the world for a long time. I, I spent a lot of time in Europe, in the UK. I've, I've worked with their projects. And I actually just finished writing a book called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. Uh, that sort of sums up the last 30 years of, of getting innocent people out of prison, everything I've learned about the causes of wrongful conviction. And, uh, you know, your case is a case I think about in terms of that because uh, bad identifications, which your case involved, is the leading cause of wrongful convictions around the world where people are identifying the wrong people. And a lot of that has to do with how bad our memories are. A lot of it has to do with how bad the police procedures are with doing identifications. 
But there are many, many innocent people in prison who were falsely identified. And we've just finally got California to change the way the police do identification procedures to do them better. And hopefully fewer innocent people like you are going to go to prison as a result of that. Wow, that's awesome. So you mentioned something about Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, So you go out there and actually like train some of the people that are down there? Were you responsible for uh, the start of any of these innocence projects in Europe? So in Europe, I I go every summer to England. Um, I teach a course in wrongful convictions there. And then I do a lot of speaking and I work with, we now have four innocence projects in England, Um, actually one in Wales. We have four in the United Kingdom. And we also have a whole network throughout Europe now. We have a project in Amsterdam. We have a project in Italy. We have a project in Spain and Barcelona. Wow. We have projects. It, it's just blown up in 20 years into this global movement and this global network because people hear stories like yours. They're very moved by it. In fact, you referred earlier to the Hawaii Innocence Project. And I remember the moment of its inception because you and I were together. That's correct. And we were just eating dinner after you got out with a lawyer from Hawaii. And when you told her your story, she was crying and she said, we need to do this in Hawaii. And now there's a Hawaii Innocence Project that's got a lot of innocent people out of prison. So this thing has grown organically and emotionally and it's real and concrete and, you know, it's the, the most beautiful thing I've been part of in my life because nobody can argue that innocent people should be in prison. And often when innocent people are in prison, guilty people are on the streets. Um, we have a case in Riverside where we finally exonerated this guy after 20 years. And right now there's a murder trial going on in Riverside because we exonerated our client and in the same time proved who the guys were who wow. did it. And now they're on trial. So these three guys who are involved in this murder have been out there for 20 years without anybody pursuing them. And it was only because we pursued to get our innocent client out to do that. We had to solve the crime. And we did. And we've done that in a number of cases where we're actually doing law enforcement at the same time we're freeing innocent people. So this isn't about the left wing or the right wing or conservative or Republican, Democrat. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about the truth and us going out and finding the truth. I like that because, you know, there's a, a Bible scripture that says the truth will set you free. That's, that's <laughs> a very apropos <laughs> statement to our work. The truth, if we can get them to listen, will set you free. So I have a, a question. I know you guys probably get thousands of letters um, here in San Diego mm-hmm. through all of, from all of California. Yeah. How do you go about screening? Because, you know, there are people that are actually guilty and say they're innocent mm-hmm. and they're laughing and behind their, their brain, their head, and they share it with others here and there. How do you go through the process of knowing that that person you're going to represent is innocent? Because I'm sure you would never take anyone that's guilty. Sure. Well, so back in the day when we took your case on, I was the guy who did all that. Oh, my goodness. Because there was only one lawyer in the office. So I read every letter that came in. I went through every file and I picked out the cases where I thought, you know, this looks like an innocence case. Now we get thousands of letters a year. I have a massive team. Um, I've got 10 lawyers in my office full time. I've got 30 or 40 law students. I have 100 volunteer attorneys. 
and we have everybody go through the letters that come in. Then we send out questionnaires to the people who are incarcerated. We then pull all their appellate records. We talk to their trial lawyer. We talk to their appellate lawyer. And then someone will write a memo up evaluating the case. And then twice a week, uh, there's presentations that are done to me and the lawyers in my office. And unfortunately or fortunately, I have the awful Caesar-like power of thumbs up or thumbs down of whether a case progresses. If we decide it's got the possibility, we go into an investigation, we look for the evidence, and along the way, a lot of cases fall to the side. Now, some do because we ultimately like, this person's guilty. It's not worth our time. Right. The sad thing is there's many more where they very well might be innocent, but we just can't develop the evidence to prove it. And we, as you know, we have the burden of proving innocence. Absolutely. So that's the hard thing about this work. I mean, when we worked on your case, there were only a handful of innocent people who'd been freed from prison. Now, with all the innocence projects in the United States, we've freed more than 3,000 people. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, this isn't just a few people. And the thing I always tell people is, and that's the tip of the iceberg, because those 3,000, and this is hard to tell you, my brother, you're the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. The unlucky ones are the ones where nobody read their letter, nobody helped them out, there was no evidence to prove they're innocent, we couldn't get in front of a judge, a judge wouldn't have the courage to reverse that conviction. And there's many, many who are left behind in that process. So we know it's 3,000 that we freed, but there's a lot more who are in there. So you're right. I mean, I think if I was in prison and guilty, I might write me a letter, because why not? Take my shot. But in our process, those cases fall apart very quickly because we have to be able to prove innocence. And that's a very different thing than just saying you're innocent. It's no, not I, what they say. It's what we can prove. Makes a lot of sense. I remember when I wrote you guys, it was like, we got your letter. Don't write us. <laughs> right. Uh, if, we don't con- you, if we don't contact you again, then that means we didn't take your case. So it was mm-hmm. probably about uh, eight months later. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, they didn't take my case. I get a letter. Like, whoa, I was excited. I, I didn't mm-hmm. care where it was going. At that point, I was just excited that someone would listen, mm-hmm. that someone would take the time to actually care. And it's it's pretty powerful because you don't really get a paycheck from people you pull out of prison, right? I've actually never taken a salary from the Innocence Project either. I'm a full-time law professor, so I get paid for my teaching and this has, believe it or not, been basically a volunteer job for 23 years. Really? Yeah. I just, I, I'm a regular professor, so I get paid for my, my salary for my teaching. I don't take any salary from the Innocence Project. And that's helped it, you know, be able to fund the cases and the work that we do. But, you know, you touch on a really important point that I stress to my students, and that is how we communicate with people who are incarcerated and how we listen to them, even if in the end we can't do anything, matters. Um, you know, I, I, I always am nervous about giving false hope to anybody and we don't want to do that, but we do want to let people know that we care. We're listening. We're trying. We're out here trying to figure this out and we might not be able to, which is the sad reality, but I think it matters to people just to be heard and to be cared about because a lot of our clients, nobody's listened to them for a very long time. No, you're absolutely correct. Even though it took about eight months for me when I got that letter. Hey, we're now looking at your file. We need you to send us your, your trial paperwork. 
and then we'll contact you again. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my goodness. I was just happy that someone was listening. Um, you're getting ready. You've writ- written a book. Yeah. You've written a book. Believe it or not, I took the time to write a book. <laughs> that is pretty powerful. So when or how do we get a hold of this book? Uh, so it'll be available for pre-orders uh, in the next couple of weeks. I think the book will be released at the end of the year. Um, you know, anyone who follows me on social media can certainly find out about it because I post about it. And I'm at Justin O. Brooks on Twitter, on Instagram and Facebook. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited about it because I think I think I've, you know, got something important to say about this topic after doing so many cases and working around the world. And there's common themes that we can fix in our criminal legal system to stop a lot of these cases from happening. But it starts with opening our hearts and our minds to the reality that there are innocent people locked up in our correctional facilities. And I I think after more than 3,000 documented cases... Wow. Uh, we can't ignore it anymore. This It's a reality. So this book that you have, does is it going to speak about certain people you got out? Because mm-hmm. I know you have a really famous guy that you got out. I mean, there was a movie done on him. Uh, yep. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. You sure. were in the movie, Justin. I was uh, <laughs> actually, I had a cameo in it as a bartender, but uh, Academy Award nominated actor Greg Kinnear plays me in the movie. The movie's called Brian Banks. It's actually on Hulu right now. People can watch it. And, uh, you know, it was an important story. I think Hollywood got interested in it because Brian was one of the best football players in the country and when he was falsely accused of rape. And then years later, the woman came forward and admitted that it never happened. She actually Facebook friend requested him and then said, can we let bygones be bygones from high school? And, uh, you know, he lost out on this promising NFL career. And then uh, Brian and I worked together. We got a trainer to work with him. And he actually lived with my family for a period of time. Really? And he ended up playing for the Atlanta Falcons. So uh, Hollywood got interested in the story. And Brian and I had a lot of meetings. And we talked about we didn't want it to be a football movie. We wanted it to be about the justice system. Because he was a 17-year-old kid, wow. and his lawyer advised him to plead guilty, even though he was innocent, and he was facing 44 years to life in prison if he went to trial, and they said that he had the possibility of probation if he took a plea. So you're sitting there as a 17-year-old kid, and someone's saying, if you take this deal, you might be able to go home. If you don't take this deal, we're probably going to lose the trial, and you're going to die in prison. And I I think it's important for people to understand that innocent people do sometimes even plead guilty because it's so scary what they're facing. And you know this much, much better than I'll never understand at the level you understand it um, because I've never spent a night in jail. But the idea of facing down the rest of your life in prison versus any opportunity to avoid that. And so we've had a number of innocent people plead out. And that's problematic, especially when it's a kid, a 17-year-old kid who makes that decision. And on the day of trial, his parents were outside, and he said to the lawyer, can I talk to my parents? And they said, no. The lawyer says, you have to make this decision right now. Do you want to take this deal or not? And if door number one, you might go home. Door number two, you might die in prison. What do you want to do? And so it's very powerful. And um, these are things I, you know, part of my mission is not... Just to get, and I don't want to say just to get innocent people, but it's not only to get innocent people out of prison, but it's to get people to hear those stories and to work towards reforming the system 
to stop this from happening. Well, we're never going to be able to stop wrongful convictions altogether because human beings make decisions. We and, make mistakes. And we all make mistakes. We're all imperfect. But we can do better. We can do a lot better than what we're doing. You know, uh, I remember in my case, uh, they when I got off the airplane because they brought me back from Hawaii, the, the police, mm-hmm. when we landed, say, hey, we know you didn't do it. Tell us who did it and you can go home right now. And it was like, in my mind, the first thing, I, who, who do I say? Or what I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking, that would be totally cruel. And so I, I don't know. And I remember, you know, in perspective, I, I probably should have, but I was so taken a deal. And, I, and I, they offered me to walk mm-hmm. before I started trial. You know, and I just, I, I, I couldn't make nobody up. And I just couldn't do that. And at that point, I was like, you know, this is my life. And I may end up in prison the rest of my life for something I didn't do. And so I get that. And a lot of people take deals. You're absolutely correct. And and sometimes they can't take them back. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know a guy personally who looked just like this guy. He kept the guy's picture, looked exactly like him, who actually committed the crime. And all of his friends knew but he couldn't tell because he was part of a gang. Yep. And and it's just, it's wild. We see that case, Adam. We see that case every day. This whole thing that's very sad. These kids get drawn into these gangs. These gangs become their family because they don't have good family support. They don't have things going on at home. They don't feel good about any other aspect of their life except for the gang because that's the only thing that's kind of protected them and they've been a part of and then they make these decisions when they're 16 17 years old to take the fall for the gang don't don't tell on them and then we get the letter 12 years later when they're 30 years old saying i'm kind of done with prison now and it wasn't me who did it it was this other guy and then a lot of times they say and i can't even tell you who it is because uh i'll get killed as still being affiliated with the gang or my family members will get killed who still live in the community. It's, it's a tragedy the way gangs have impacted communities. And I think there's a very little understanding of what some of these kids go through and why they join gangs because the alternative is not better for a lot of them of not being a part of that gang when they live in that neighborhood. Uh, a lot of them look at just getting beat up every day and being ostracized, being killed because they're not playing along and they're children um, that get sucked into it. And then it's hard to get out once you're in. You're absolutely correct. You know, um, you grew up in Puerto Rico. Uh huh. Were you born in Puerto Rico? No, my father is Australian. My mother is British and my parents decided to move to Puerto Rico to be English teachers. And they dropped me in a Puerto Rican high school, <laughs> little gringo kid, didn't speak a word of Spanish. And the next thing you know, I was having to navigate Puerto Rico. And what's funny is at the time, I hated it. Uh, I had a headache every day because I didn't know what anyone was saying. Uh, it wasn't particularly safe being the only gringo in my school. <laughs> it was a lot of fights. Um, and now I look back at it as being the single most important event of my life. It just defined who I was of opening my mind to a different culture, different language, different people. I I saw real poverty for the first time. Wow. And it kind of shaped this work um, that I do. Had my parents not made that decision, I might have just been another suburban white kid who uh, went through life not being aware of the real world. 
Wow, that's that's pretty powerful. So you travel back and forth to Puerto Rico quite often. Mm -hmm. Do you have family there or do you go work there? So my high school friends are like family to me. And 40 years later, we're still incredibly close. So I have lots of family I call on the island. Uh, I also teach at the law school down there once a year at Interamericana Law School. I teach a class in Condenas Horadas and in wrongful convictions. And... um, I still consider it home. It's it's when I land on the island, I feel like I'm home. So I'm down there at least twice a year. That's pretty powerful. You know, I see your life and you're like this, like a humble man. And I love it because you're just a normal American man that isn't really worried about riches. And and that's not important to you. And and I love that, Justin. You know, I, I, I think you're, you... Again, you're my hero. You've done things that no one else could possibly do. And um, I want to ask you one question. I know we're running out of time, but I, I wanted to make sure I asked this. You have children. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is an attorney. How's he doing? He just won his first jury trial. So he's <laughs> San Diego's newest public defender. And I'm so proud of him that he's following in this criminal path to make the system better and to defend people. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of surreal, but it's awesome. Hey, tell us how we can reach you, Justin. Uh, so I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at Justin O. Brooks, and you can find us at CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org to check out, uh, the work, the California Innocence Project. Phenomenal. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you so much for Justin. I love this man, God, and pray that you would continue to bless him and use him like you have, God. He's He's the man, God, and he is my hero here on planet Earth. And I thank you for him, God. You are good in Jesus' name. Oceanside Pier is a sacred place, blessed with ocean views, the strand, good people, and good times. You'll find all those things and more at the Bistro at the Pier. Locally owned and operated, the Bistro at the Pier offers delicious food options and a full slate of crafted coffee drinks, including Italy's own Cafe Vergnano, sourced from Italy's finest coffee beans. So whether you're craving an acai bowl or an espresso, the Bistro at the Pier is waiting for you. Head on down or visit them online at bistroatthepier.org. Freedom Generation Higher Education is a faith-based alternative education option that values constitutional rights and medical freedom, serving ages 3 through 6th grade. Hosted by At the Cross Church in Oceanside, they offer in-person classes and electives Tuesday through Thursday, along with the classical conversation community offering foundations and essentials on Mondays. And they're now accepting applications for fall 2022. Visit them online at atthecrossoceanside.com. That's atthecrossoceanside.com. Welcome back. If you just tuned in, this is Freedom with Adam Riojas. We just had an incredible interview with Justin Brooks of the California Innocence Project. And the man is amazing. But we are now going to go into the latter part of, of our 
show today, and, and we are now in the book of John, and we just finished John chapter 8 last week, and now we're going into John chapter 9. And without further ado, here we go. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, this is a very powerful piece of scripture right here. And and let me tell you why. Because here, his disciples somehow were thinking that if something was wrong with you, then you were obviously a sinner. You had committed sin inside the womb. Some of the Jews even believed that in a pre-existing life, you had sinned or that you may have sinned in some other way or form. Or They even believed that you sinned in the womb. But Scripture is very clear that sometimes things happen because we live in a sinful, fallen world. His parents here weren't the sinners. And and we could look at a, a powerful story in the Bible. It's historically factual about Job and how he lost everything he had. Yet, we know that. In the final end, God used that situation of all of his suffering and everyone he lost to to bring him even more children, more wealth than he ever experienced because he never denied God. He never cursed God. He kept his eyes on God and he believed that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are called according to to his purpose. Yes, I know we see that in Romans 8 28, 8 28, but it is still the truth to this day. God is in perfect control, and everything that happens in our life is for his glory if you are a believer and he uses it for the good as you going as you are going to see as the story develops. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day and night cometh when no man can work. Now, what's interesting about this verse is, is Jesus is the creator. He's the one that created everything and he continues to work. Now, in Colossians chapter 1 verses 14 to 18, we can see that Jesus created all things. It wasn't some things. The Bible is very clear that he created all things. Let me read that for you so that you can see this. And I'm going to start in verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15? Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones and dominions or principalities or power, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That word consist literally means that he holds everything together. That word in the Greek is sonistano, and that's where we get our word sustain. He gets he sustains all things, he holds all things 
together. He is the creator. But when he meant here is that he is still working in a redemptive plan for you and I. He is still hearing your prayers. He is still our intermediate between us and the Father. Jesus said, as long as I'm the, I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that takes us simply back to what, when we started the book of John, where it says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, by the word, and without him was nothing or anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and darkness did not or could not comprehend it. And of course we know that later on it says that the word became flesh. That's correct. That's Jesus, the creator. But here we see him in this powerful act as he is going to do this powerful work and he gives this man his sight back. This is the sixth miracle that John records and it continues and it says in verse 6 it says when he was when he had thus spoken he spat on the ground made clay of the spittle and he anointed the eyes of the man with the clay. That is correct. Jesus spat on the ground made some clay, anointed the man's eyes. Now, Mark actually tells us that Jesus did two other miracles when he spat and they were healed. He did it to a a, a man that was blind and deaf where he put spit on his tongue. That's, That's right. God can do anything. He's God. You know that in the earlier days, we know that when people fasted, they would actually use the saliva and put it on people's eyes and that that would help them with some of the infirmities. Now, as we continue to read, we see that God, Jesus, can do miracles any way and any shape that he wishes to do them. We, we see clearly in Scripture that he did other miracles that were non-conventional. Some were healed by purified pot of a stew in 2 Kings 4, 38 to 41. Naaman in the Old Testament, a, a Syrian king, was healed by washing in the Jordan, in the Jordan River. 2 Kings 5, 10 to 14. One was healed by touching the bones of Elisha after Elisha had already been dead. 2 Kings 13, 20 to 21, some were healed when the shadow of Peter fell upon them, Acts 5, 14 to 16. Some were healed when Paul's handkerchiefs was laid upon them, Acts 19, 11 to 12. Now, just because God can and does the unexpected in different ways doesn't always necessarily mean that every time something happens like that, it's from God. So we have to be careful that we know and are assured in our heart that all good things come from above and that when we are asking and when we are praying, that we're praying to God, the Creator, to the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, as it continues in verse 7, chapter 9, it says, And said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, interesting because this pool still 
exist. And Siloam means interpretation sent. They believe that this pool was part of a prophetic pool that one day the Messiah would come to this place, the Jews at that time. And sure enough, he shows up in the scene. This pool still exists. They found it. It still works. And it's watered by the underground tunnel that Hezekiah built. Now, as we continue, he went his way, therefore, washed and came seen. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Isn't this this beggar? Isn't this this beggar? Listen, if if you just tuned in, you are here on this show with freedom with Adam Riojas as we continue to go through the book of John. And we just seen this powerful miracle that Jesus had just done to this person that was healed. And now they were saying, isn't this the beggar? And we pick it up in John 9, 9, which some said he is, this is he. Others said he is like him, but he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes open? Who opened your eyes? Who did this? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus. Listen, Jesus, that's the name that is above every name. There is coming a time in history very soon where every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's correct. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're we're there. Look, it's been... I don't think ever in in a time in history we've been where we're at now. The next world war will be fought with nuclear weapons. And and it's knocking. The Russians have just said that that's what they would use if they need to. We've, America has bought like $286 million of medicine for radiation in case of an attack. We're there. Listen, it's, it's, It's very simple. Jesus, come into my heart. I believe you're God. I believe you can do all things. And if we see him now, he is doing something powerful. If you're blind, he can give you your sight back. If you have an infirmity, Jesus can still heal you. And it continues in in chapter 9, verse 11 of John, where he says, He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, go to the pool asylum and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said unto him, where is he? He said, I, I, I know not. They brought to the fairies him that aforetime was blind. They brought him to the religious leaders. You would think that at this point, the people would be rejoicing instead of, instead of badgering him. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him how he had received the sight. They were angry because he had performed this miracle on the Sabbath day. But they were being hypocritical because they would circumcise people on the Sabbath. And if their cattle would fall into a ditch, they would go out and pick, get them out of the, the ditches. He said unto them, he put clay upon my eyes and I washed and I do see. Therefore, it says some of the Pharisees. This man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. They are more concerned about the Sabbath day than they are about this man being healed. The Sabbath wasn't made. The Sabbath was 
was created for us so that we could rest, so that we could enjoy the presence of God. Jesus is a fulfillment of that, fulfillment of the Sabbath when he says, come on to me and I will give you rest. Give me your burdens. I, I will lighten your load. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Can you hear the roars of these people? How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? No sinner can do such miracles. They said unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that he hath opened thy eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. They didn't think Jesus was anybody special. They didn't want to lose their position, their their religiosity, their their affront to the people, their riches. The Pharisees were the wealthiest people of that time. And he had, let's, as we continue in 18, as the Jews were concerned about him, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. Now they went further. They wanted to talk to the parents. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he see? How does he see? Don't you know if this is your son? His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. This man was born blind. But but by what means he now seeth, we know not or, or who hath opened his eyes. We know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. The parents risked being kicked out of the synagogues, excommunicated, if they would have said, Jesus did it. Jesus gave sight to our son. So they put it back on their son. They said, he is of age. Ask him. Verse 22 says, these words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. That is blasphemous. They knew who Jesus was. They knew he was the Messiah. And they were denying the very things that only the Messiah could do. And that was performing all of these miracles. John has given us this picture. And this is now the sixth miracle that that he's given us that, that was creative. That only God could do. Remember the very first one when he changed the substance? To another substance? That's impossible. That just doesn't happen by itself. But Jesus made water into wine, grape juice. 25 says this. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or not, I know not. I don't know that stuff. One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. What a great response. Sometimes when when others attack me, when the world attacks me, when non-believers attack me, when the secular world attacks me, I say this, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. 
26 says this. Then said they to him again, what did he do to thee? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you do it to his, will you two be his disciples? They are badgering him so much. And he now comes out with the best answer possible. Will you two be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke unto Moses. Now, that's interesting. Because if you remember whom Moses spoke to in the burning bush was the great I am. And Jesus had just claimed to them that he was the great I am in the previous chapter before Abraham was I am. Just exactly the response that Moses got when when he said, who should I say sent us or sent me? I am that I am. I am is sending you. Verse 29 says, again, we know not what Moses spake unto Moses. We know that God spoke unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, why? Here it is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is. And yet he hath opened my eyes. Jesus has opened my eyes. Listen, if you just tuned in, this is Freedom with Adam Riojas. And we're going through the book of John. And and we see now this great miracle that Jesus had performed. It is the sixth that John calls out in the book of John when he gave this man back his sight. And he, he now says, it's a marvelous thing. How come you don't know who he is? He opened my eyes. Verse 31 says this, but we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doth his will, him he heareth. The man is preaching to them now. God hears those that are his children. He hears all prayers, but especially the repentant sinner. Or if you are in that place where you're tired of this life and you want something new, something with substance, that is Jesus. Verse 32 says this, of chapter 9, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? To this point, no one ever born blind was given back his sight, as far as we know. We have this recorded for us. It is from history. A man was given back his sight who was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, that was all to Get the born in sin and doest thou teach us? And they cast him out. That's the heart of, of, of a religious man. You, you get to a point where you're unteachable. You get to a point where you look at yourself now. You, you get to a point where you think you've reached this, reached this pedestal. That's not the way a preacher or a teacher or someone else who knows the Lord should react. We should always be willing to hear and to still learn. Verse 35 says, And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he said unto him, Doest thou believe on the Son of God? And that question is for you today. 
Do you find yourself being religious? Do you find yourself in a place where you may want to take your life today? You're sick. You're hopeless. Or maybe you're a scholar. But the question still goes out. Do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, this is the answer that the blind man who was, could now see said. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? I will believe in him. I want to believe in this person. And Jesus said unto him, Thou that hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Jesus now reveals himself to him and says, It is me. Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 38 says, And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And at that point, this man began to worship Jesus. See, it's very clear in the Ten Commandments that you should only worship God and God alone. And here we see what this man does. He begins to worship Jesus. You cannot be safe or call yourself a child of God, a son of God, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, if you don't worship him as God. Scripture is very clear. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might see, and they which see might be made blind. That is speaking to the religious leader, to the religious person, to the person that believes they've already arrived. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no Sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Your sin remains. If you find yourself in a place that you say you have all the answers, you've arrived, you don't need God. Your sin remains in you. Today is the opportunity to change that around. You can be that man and repeat the very words that he said. Lord, I believe in verse 38, and he worshiped him. You can worship Jesus today. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to bless you. It's very simple. Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross for me. I believe that you rose on the third day 
I believe that you can forgive me of my sins. And I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Come into my heart and be my God. Remove the spiritual blindness from my eyes and allow me to see today. Today is a day of salvation, folks. And if that was you today, I want to hear from you. I want to invite you to our church. It's a free open door for you. You know where we're at. We're at the cross in Oceanside, 2112 El Camino Real. Come see us. If this show meant something to you, and not the show in itself, but the content, Jesus who can save you, today is the day. Come see us. Jesus loves you. I want to close this show, and I want to pray for you. And I want to invite you to come see us. Father, you are awesome. You are God. And if you reach someone today, I know that your word does not come void. Bless them, God. Let this be the first day of the rest of their life, of eternity, God. Fill them with your spirit, Father. In Jesus' name, thank you so much for listening today. We love you. We thank you. And we hope to hear from you. And we see, we'll see you next Sunday. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Freedom with Adam Riojas. If you'd like to contact Adam, email him at freedom at adamriojas.com. Make sure to tune in next week at 5 p.m. here on K-Praise. If you missed a show, go to your favorite podcast provider and search Freedom with Adam Riojas. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.